Welcome back to Muzzle Blast, the official podcast of the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. This week, we've got a really special guest. We're talking to Bob McBride of the Black Powder TV YouTube channel. If you're not I guess, connected to the world, which if you're listening to the podcast, I'm sure you watch some YouTube. Bob's been running the Black Powder TV YouTube channel for a while now, and he's been producing a lot of great videos, among them a uh, new shooter series that I think if you're into muzzleloading or just getting started in muzzleloading, you're going to want to check out. Uh, Bob's a really interesting guy. It's been neat reading his posts and talking with him a little bit on the American Long Rifles Forum. Link to that down in the show notes as well. You need to join that forum and hang out and learn a ton there. I've been kind of nixing social media in the evenings and replacing it with the ALR forum, and I'm learning a ton. So check out the forum. I hope you enjoy this episode. Bob's a really great guy. Getting out there, sharing muzzleloading, sharing black powder, and having fun doing it. Enjoy the show, and I'll catch you at the end. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1-in-24 and 1-in-22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. So it sounds like we kind of live in a similar kind of way. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like I'm kind of, I'm probably much smaller, but I've got a little homestead, I guess is what I call it. And you're, you're a big operator compared to me. Well, it's kind of a hobby farm, really, more than anything. But yeah. It's big enough that, you know, we've got, we've got sort of almost separate areas, like where the garden and all that is. You can't see it from the house or anywhere else. You've got to take a trail, uh, walk, walking trail or four-wheeler drive up. And so that's kind of like a little <clears throat> oasis all yeah. its own, you know. And, and so it's big enough that we, it, we can kind of do that, have everything separated and where you can't. It's almost like little different other separate little farms almost. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's wonderful. We love it. Just quiet. 30 miles from the nearest town, you know, the nearest decent sized town. We're 10 miles from, you know, 2000 population town. But, um, but yeah, it's quiet, man. No cars, no honking, no noise, you know, no traffic jams. I went to University of Houston and, and lived in Houston. I was born there. I was born north of Houston, about 30 miles. But um, but I spent most of my career there. Okay. And and the commute, you know, the thing about Houston is like L.A. It's 100 miles of sprawl. Yeah. So you kind of pick a side to live on. So you're not <laughs> driving through it all the time. Right. But um, but it's still, you know, it was it's 12, 14 lane wide highways and everybody's doing 90 you know, a thousand horns honking at once. Yeah. And, you know, just brutal, brutal. I, I hated every minute of it. <laughs> yeah. You're, you've got a, a big change compared to that now for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was kind of, I kind of look at that as like the oddity in my life because growing up in Alaska, real rural, like I did, um, 
you know, that was way more rural than I'm living now, which yeah. is like as rural as you can get almost in the, in the States. Right. You know, but, but being in Alaska and, and, and the way we live there, dad was a big hunter and trapper. And I mean, that hundred percent, you know, hunting and winter trap lines and, and fishing and, you know, that was his thing. So that's what I did too. So is, do you think, I guess to kind of segue into, into what we're talking about, is that kind of, uh, was your upbringing a real influence to you then on, as to what you're doing now with, you know, kind of your small farm and. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. For sure. Dad was, dad was, um, uh, we, well, g- give you a little example. We moved to Alaska, um, uh, probably four or five times a year, we would fly up, um, to the Brooks range or drive to the Yukon river and do a two, three week hunt. Hmm. And that's from the time I was seven, eight years old. Oh, that's so awesome. I've got, you know, I got little pictures where I'd get my little disposable camera and being in, in the camp and with my little ax and cutting stuff down, <laughs> cutting brush down for the fire, you know, yeah. just that, that's how I grew up, you know? And, and, and it wasn't just the hunting. It was, day to day, we were super rural. So, I mean, I was seven years old. I got my first 22, mm-hmm. probably nine, 10, got my first 20 gauge single shot break barrel shotgun. So I'd get out of school, the books would get dropped and I'd grab one or the other a pocket full of shells and off I went, you know, yeah. and we had, we had snowmobile and three wheeler and stuff. And so, you know, I was 10 years old and I could be 20 miles down the river, you know, in the winter it's frozen over. It's just like an empty highway for yeah. a kid. You know, so, yeah, I mean, that's exactly, you know, I, when I left Alaska, my parents were up there for 35 years or something. But when I left, I went to the Marine Corps and then got out and went to Houston and then and then from there to Tennessee. OK, but that that's, you know, sort of a, I'm, and I'm really surprised that I never moved back to Alaska. It just kind of never happened for me. But um, but this is kind of the closest thing. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. So big, big influence, you know, dad was always in the garage reloading and he, he never was into, um, muzzle loaders or black powder, even though he's got a, I say into, you know, he's tons of guns just like I do, but he, he has a, uh, Thompson center Hawkin and he's got an old custom planes rifle from the seventies. Um, you know, so it's part of his thing too, but just, just, as part of the general shooting thing, you right? Know, you know, he's got his thirty out six and his shotguns and you know his muzzle loaders and it's just part of it's part of his thing. But and that's the way it was for me in the beginning. It was just part of my um, hunting and shooting sort of lifestyle. And that that goes all the way back. My grandfather was that way. It was just mm-hmm. a big part of our big part of our life. Yeah. I think anybody that's kind of semi self-reliant, you know, has, is that way, even if you're not into just muzzleloading, if you're into firearms at all, yeah, I think you're also interested in our history and the, and the muzzleloaders really tie in with that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a huge thing, you know, it, it, and that, that's what I studied in college history and, and okay, I was cool. always, yeah. So I was always, but I was always into that. And, you know, from the time I was, you know, my grandmother and grandfather would send me Louis Lamore books, mm-hmm. you know, which were Westerns. And, uh, from the time I was seven or eight years old, when we were in Alaska and they were in Texas and they, they would read 
one and then send it to me and I would read them. I read them all by the time I was, you know, probably 10 years old, I'd read every one he ever wrote probably eight times, you know, That's just awesome. into, just, just into the history and, and all of that. So yeah, yeah I've, I've always been into that. And that's part of, you know, what brought me kind of here is just the, is the history of it all. I metal detect, you know, and, mm-hmm. and our farm was just to go into this real quick. The civil war is a big focus of mine too. And, um, our farm was occupied by the union army during the civil war. They wow. occupied our, our County because this little County was famous for guerrilla attacks on, union convoys and stuff after they had taken Tennessee. So, yeah. So the Ohio volunteer militia spent a year and a half on our farm to try to pacify this County during the war. Wow. So the front of the, one of our front pastures is where the Creek runs through. And that's where the cavalry was picketed Hmm. for, for two full seasons. So, so I get up there metal detect and too many balls and buttons and cavalry tack and all of that. Oh, that's so cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah. When you said that you were near the, uh, you know, Cumberland, I was, I was thinking, oh, that's so cool. You're right where, you know, the long hunters and the early settlers went through to, to break into that kind of the, the first part of the West, but you're also connected to the civil war. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. My sister and him live in, um, Knoxville area. And, and that's, that's like real close to the first settled areas when they came across, you know, through the gap. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of that early part. And then of course, this area, uh, is exactly where the union army invaded Tennessee from Ohio and Pennsylvania. Hmm. So lots of, lots of, lots of, uh, civil war history here. One of the big battles of the war, the battle of stones river, um, was held in, uh, was fought in Murfreesboro, which is just 35 miles away. Okay. Yeah. And I've, and I've metal detected all the private land that, <laughs> that that battle, uh, happened on, oh, really? you know, cause yeah, cause the, the union and Confederate lines were, <clears throat> you know, four miles long or something. And during that battle, and so the right wing and the left wing of, of the armies on the east side were, um, that's all private land. You know, the, the, the battlefield, uh, site isn't that big anymore. It's hundred acres or something. Right. So, yeah. So metal detecting and, you know, history and yeah, that takes you right into muzzleloaders if you're, you know, if you're going anywhere with it. Yeah. And I did have a, um, the first, the first, and I've, I've been into muzzleloaders seriously, like 10 to 20 pounds of powder a year, seriously for 10 wow. or 12 years. But, um, but prior to that, um, I had a 1853 infield, mm-hmm. an original oh. that I hunted, that I hunted with. Yeah. And, um, and I loved it, you know, it was, it was just part of my gun collection and I yeah. hunted with it and shot it and all of that. But that's probably, um, what got me into muzzleloaders the way I am now is that infield, that 53 infield and metal detecting because I would shoot the, when I'd find a Confederate 577 uh, mini ball metal detecting, I'd shoot it oh, really? out of my, out of my infield. Yeah. Oh, and that was like, that's like mind blowing, you know, Yeah. to, to have an original and, you know, it's not a proven Confederate infield, but it was an infield. And most of them were used by the South. Yeah. Um, but you find dropped mini ball, you know, 10 mm-hmm. or 12 inches in the ground at the side of a, an actual documented battlefield or, or at the site of, you know, a winter camp for some cavalry 
Yeah. And and find it and it's in perfect condition and you've got the gun that shoots it. Why not? So boy, you know, yeah, exactly. So the perfect condition ones that I found, the drops. Oh yeah. They're they're in my berm at the at the range. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I mean, that's a real I mean, that's I I've listened to a lot of connections to history, but that has got to be one of the most intimate connections to history I've heard on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and it then intimate is the right word because there's something tangible when you're metal detecting and you know what is there yeah. or you're trying to find where something is like for years I was, I was looking for, um, winter camps or, you know, small camps that were based on the official uh, documents of the civil war should be on this farm somewhere. Yeah. And so I'd search this farm until you find it and you find the, you find the campfires and you find the mm-hmm. swag where they threw bullets into the fire or, carved chess pieces out of mini balls and you find that stuff and yeah. then you can almost see the camp yeah. you know because you find a two or three four fires you find their their privy you find where all the horse tack you know there's an area as big as a living room that's got horse tack all over the place so you know they picketed there yeah and boy that i mean that's tangible you know that's tangible stuff and i i just love that even up here i'm in northern indiana and i you don't really think about it being much of a civil war active area but we found several buttons and and little bits and pieces here and there that are or coins even from that time and it's it's neat when you find that stuff and and you just remember what was here before right right it's very cool and that, that reminds me of that the day I find, and I remember the day I found the the first mini ball that I shot out of that infield um, that was in perfect condition that gave me the idea to shoot it um, was the same day, and it was on the on the line for the Battle of Stones River. And that same day, I found an 1804 Spanish silver dollar, you know, pieces of eight dollar mm-hmm. that was about an inch in the ground. And it had been, it was next to a tree. So it had been pushed up by that tree okay, almost to the surface, you know, as a tree grew in the roots and it just kind of lifted it up out of the ground. But the neat thing about that is that Spanish silver dollar was a, um, uh, it was a fake, it was a period counterfeit. So they, they did that a lot where they would shave a little off, you know, make it lighter than it should be. Um, but it was a perfectly marked. It was just light. It was huh. like 5% lighter than it should have been. And, you know, I did all that research and found out yeah. that that was a big thing. And people, people weighed them because even though, you know, the Spanish silver dollar was basically the U.S. silver dollar in the early period. Mm-hmm. And um, and there was cheating going on back then, you know. Huh. And so, so it was really neat to find a. Uh, counterfeit period counterfeit silver dollar you find all kinds of stuff metal detecting it's yeah. it's wonderful yeah so have you found any other muzzleloading related items yeah i found you know i found um springfield locks oh. lock parts hammers um i found bayonets and um um stock rings you mm-hmm. know um yeah. You know, all kinds of stuff like that. A lot of muzzleloader stuff, mainly uh, day-to-day military-related stuff. Right. So, yeah. So, like you say, buttons, you know, uniform buttons are 
that's an awesome thing to find, you know, because mm-hmm. that's an e- that's an easy visual too, right? Like yeah. they're taking their coat off or putting it on, pop a button, and uh, and then you find it all these years later. So what you had your eighteen fifty three Enfield, and what yeah. what pushed you then to get into muzzleloading? I mean, I guess closer to where you are now, where you have. I don't even know how many, you know, muzzleloaders and things, but (laughs) you've got quite a few and you're really into them now. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, Yeah. And I I don't know. I have 20 or so, probably only uh, maybe 10 have been on the channel. I've got, um, uh, you know, 58 Remingtons and. 1860 armies and stuff that I haven't Mm -hmm. done anything on with the show. But, um, I I think it was really, um, the day I decided to start shooting those out of that, you know, because I had bought, uh, five, seven, sevens and and I had, uh, made my own. And so I shot it pretty regular, but when I started shooting the originals and then, um, I don't know, it was almost like something clicked and I was like, man, I just gotta, I gotta shoot this more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I had hunted with it some, but, um, but I started hunting with it more about that same time. And, um, and then I think, I, uh, within a couple of weeks of shooting that first original, I had a Mike Brooks flintlock. Oh. So it just kind of almost flipped a switch because mm-hmm. I shot so much. Um, you know, I, I shot three gun competition. So oh, that's cool. shooting ARs and shotguns and pistols and target transition and speed and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so that took up most of my range time, but I, you know, I'd always spent three, four five days a week at the range. Wow. And so that kind of, with that experience, shooting that original drop out of that infield sort of triggered me over and I got another flintlock and then, or, I mean, I got a, my first flintlock and then, um, I love that so much. I love the, I love the idea that it wasn't inferior to a cap lock, mm-hmm. you know, practically speaking, it's maybe it's got a 10th of a second or hundredth of a second more delay, but it's imperceptible if you, if you load it and shoot it right. Yeah. Yeah. If and you got so your lock tuned, that, it's. Yeah, exactly. And, and this Mike Brooks, he, you know, it, the lock was just so fast and I was like, man, this thing is awesome. And I, and it was lucky that I got a gun like that as my first one versus something else, mm-hmm. you know, with a lock that, you know, not a chambers lock, that sort of thing. And I just, I fell in love with it and I was like, well, I got to get a smooth bore because I can turkey hunt with this, you right. know, and got a smooth bore. And then, um, it's like, well, here's a 58 that I've got, but God, I need a 36 because how am I going to shoot squirrels with this? You know, and it just like this, this within six months, I probably had six, you, you know, like to cover all my bases. Right. Yeah. And I still, you know, modern hunted some at that point because, you know, there's some things you just can't, um, you know, you can't go with four or five buddies duck hunting and take your muzzleloader, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sitting in the blind, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get a rash from them, but, right, right. but 99% within six months, 99% of my hunting was done. Um, muzzleloader hmm. and, and, you know, I hunt archery too. And, um, but as soon as muzzleloader kicks, kicks off here in Tennessee, which is all, you know, it's, that's two months of muzzleloader and rifle here. Yeah. So, um, 
so yeah, I just, I mean, I, it almost flipped. It was hard. You know, I was sitting here thinking today, it was, um, kind of the, the whole question of how do you, you know, how did you get into muzzleloaders? And I was kind of mulling that over and it so complicated because it wasn't a sort of, a going with a buddy to the range and he brings his muzzleloader and you're blown away. Right. You know, it was this sort of this long transition from, because I knew about them before I shot my first black powder gun, I, I could tell you everything you wanted to know about 1842 Springfields, mm-hmm. Harper's Ferry and 1861 Springfields, you know, all of them. And, and so I was kind of already there just from my, my love of history in the civil war. So, so yeah, the, the transition to actually like being crazy about them, um, was quick, <laughs> you know, and it didn't feel like that was the beginning, you know, that's right. when you kind of think about the question and it's like, well, that's, it's like not even really the beginning when I got that, uh, 53 yeah. so long ago, you know, and yeah, I, I guess you... it was sort of, the, sort of the beginning when I got that, that Mike Brooks gun. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but yeah, then it's, you know, it's a hundred percent. My other stuff is relegated to defensive and yeah closet duty and, <laughs> you know, gun, gun safe duty. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause now I've got the pistols and all of it, you know, so all my bases are covered and I get so much, um, so many requests and, you know, how do you do this and do a video on this? And, you know, that it kind of keeps me going too. like, yeah, I need to get the smooth bores out and test, you know, loads more or -hmm. whatever. So there's so much, I think muzzleloaders can be so much more personal than a lot of modern firearms. I mean, I'm the same way. I've got muzzleloaders and I've got modern firearms, but doing something with a muzzleloader, it takes more time and it takes more, I think, more involvement. I was watching some videos uh, earlier today uh, and a modern firearms YouTube channel was sharing a, a new flintlock that he'd gotten. And he was going through all of the stuff that you needed for the flintlock. And he, he just mentioned that, you know, it's not like a modern firearm where you get a box of ammo and you go to the range. And I, I, right. I had never put that together because I've just been around muzzleloaders so much. Right. Uh, but it, it really clicks how different they are, but how much I think more involved you become with them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you've got to know them sort of inside and out, mm-hmm. um, to get the best from them. And, and my favorite part about it is you get dirty. Yeah. You know what I mean? You yep. can go all day at the range and shoot whatever you want and not, you know, go to the bathroom and wash your hands, mm-hmm. but you go all day to the range with a muzzleloader and you're head to toe, yep. you know, you mama's smell. got your field stripping outside, yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a big thing I love about it. Just getting dirty with it. But yeah, it's all the things that come together and the stuff you carry. And, and then, you know, if you're into history, which most people are, they're mm-hmm. into muzzleloaders. And then it's the, how did they, how did they manage this, all of this stuff on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. Cause they didn't have a, a, a range box and a box, you know, right. three they boxes were, of stuff. They yeah, had, they a, they had, had a, a pickup truck full. Exactly. They had a little bag and a horn and it was hanging on a peg by the door. And they grabbed it when it was time to go out and hunt or whatever they did, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, that, that's another big part of it with me is just how, how this was done practically Yeah. in, in history, because it wasn't, you know, it's, it's easy to go to the range with your box and, and, and load from the, the bench and do all that. And if, and if target shooting and competition is your thing, then, then that's, 
you know, that's what you do. That's yeah. part of that. Right. But, but the way I do it, which is, you know, I walk out of my door with my muzzleloader and my bag and my horn, just like they would have. And yeah. it's hang, hanging on a peg just like they had theirs. Of course, they didn't have 10 of them with 10 different bags and right, right. all that hanging, right? But and, and that's why I have all the bags because I like the I like a bag and a horn to be loaded with the stuff for that gun. Yeah. And nothing else. Mm-hmm. So I grab grab the gun off the rack and I grab the bag and the horn and then I'm heading off into the woods if it's squirrel hunting then that's what I've got. I've got all the things I need to squirrel, hunt, you know, and, and nothing more because they wouldn't have carried all that extra stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, even, even down to like a range rod, you know, that becomes something that, that they wouldn't have necessarily had, you know? No, no. And, and it's, it's necessary for us in the sense that, you know, thinking about our bore and thinking about not breaking the rod and all of that. But, and that kind of gets into that, how they manage that, because it, you learn how to use a, a the rod that comes on the gun that, that was made on the gun, then you're going to, you're not going to break it. You yeah. know, it's hand over hand. You're not reaching way up right. and, and grabbing two feet above the, the muzzle when you shove it down. You know, you're, you're, you're pushing it down there almost hand over hand, you know, within, within the foot above the bore. Yeah. To, to take care of it because mm-hmm. you don't want to break it. And that's exactly the thought they would have had. I don't want to break it. So I need to do this correctly. Yeah. I can't go out and just get a new one. I've got to, I've got to make a new one and that takes up time. That's needed <laughs> exactly. for other things. Right. Right. They didn't have time to break one. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so that, that's one of the things I love about muzzle loading specifically, but history in general is especially, and that's why, that's one of the things I love about, um, um, what's that YouTube channel? The, um, Townsend's, right? Oh, yep. Yep. Oh man. I mean, he's just, he's into that, that kind of same way I am into the, you know, well, there is a way they did this and it wasn't just any old way. It was the, yeah. it was the most economical and, and straightforward way. Yeah. And I love finding those, uh, doesn't matter what it is, any little accoutrement, anything yeah. there, there's a, there's a best practice and we don't necessarily know what all those best practices were. Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, for your average person who might not be into history as much as we might be, I mean, I think a lot of people just look at it as the, the way that we did things before mo- the modern era was just harder because we didn't know how to do it the way we're doing it now. But right. there was centuries and centuries of reasoning as to why and how they did those things. And and to me, that's just fascinating that you had people living out of small bags that they had to carry out in the woods, you know, or had a little cabin somewhere and they were making it work is just incredible. And then you had the the economy of the towns and things around it and the different trades and skills. I mean, it just, it gets real deep real fast, but it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And, and, and they did it the same. They had the, the best practices down for 200 years. Yeah. You know, things didn't change in one generation like they do today. Yeah. You know, the generation older than me and the generation younger than me has zero in common. Yeah. And today, but back then they were the same. You learn from grandpa cause he's been around the longest and knew exactly how to do it the best way. Yeah. You know? So yeah, that's, that, that is a fascinating part of that period and muzzleloaders and, and, and my big fascination was, you know, because I carry them in the way that they were carried in the sense that I 
take them off the hook and I'd walk out in the woods. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm thinking about that all the time. Like, I don't need this. Right. You know, even if I'm a half mile away and something happens, well, that just kind of ends my squirrel hunt. Like if I break a mainspring or something, right? you know, then I'm just going to be walking the half mile home and looking at the squirrels that are laughing yeah, at me in the trees, right? Chucking nuts at you. Game, yeah, game over <laughs> until you get home. That's what would have happened with them. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, outside of the history part of it, which is just, which is sort of my core thing, um, I just love the, the, and you mentioned this earlier, just the tangible nature of muzzleloading and the, the hands-on, you know, and, and, and dad and I had a conversation about this a few months ago where, cause he was a big reloader and, mm-hmm. you know, reloaded every round he ever shot and, you know, for a long period of his life. And so we were talking about that, about muzzleloading and how every time you load one, it's, you're reloading that round right there. Yeah. You know, so you, there may be two best loads for this gun and you're going to load it the way, what, for what you need for what you're doing. You know, you may need a hotter load if you're going to set for coyotes or longer range target shooting. And then uh, you need an accurate light load Yeah, possibly for this gun. If it's, if you're using, if it's a multi-purpose gun. And so you're, so you're loading it the way you've learned is the best load for that gun in that moment. And that sort of kind of connected with him because he did that with all of his guns, his two forty threes and his wildcatters that he would load so hot. They were within a grain of disintegrating halfway down range. Right. You know? (laughs) So, you know, so he kind of got that and appreciated that part of, and I think that's what he likes about muzzle loading and he's not, you know, into history like we are, but, Mm -hmm. but he does love, you know, muzzle loading deer season and, and, and that's kind of the part he likes that he's building a load that, right. That's just the perfect load. And right. that that's right up his alley. I think everybody loves muzzleloading when it gets them a couple extra weeks in the woods. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's a big, you know, that, that's a big part of, of, of the new people coming into the, it's a really interesting, the new people coming into muzzleloading, a big chunk of them are coming in just for muzzleloading gear season. Yeah. Yeah. You that's know? all they're interested in. Yeah. That's all. That's it. And and what's interesting about that too, and I see this a lot with the YouTube channel is, is a certain percentage of them are coming in and they're going down to Bass Pro Shop and buying a modern inline with the scope and all that, mm-hmm. the least possible differences, right? Just yeah. barely just barely different enough so they can shoot it during that season than, than their modern gun. But then there's this whole other group that are coming in and, and they're more um, interested in, in the fact that it's an old technology, not necessarily kind of coming to flintlocks, but they're coming to, to muzzleloader deer and, and thinking, well, yeah, those modern ones are fine, but I got ones just like it that are, you know, cartridge guns. So what about this Thompson center, you know, Hawkin or, and so those are kind of the ones that kind of are heading my direction mm-hmm. generally, which is neat because, you know, what, what do I got to say to a guy who's going to shoot a modern inline, um, except convince him this is a superior way to go. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that's my challenge there. But, but the guys that are like, man, I just got into this and just went down to, you know, Cabela's and picked up this TC Hawken and I don't know what to, I don't know which end is which. Right. You know, those, those are kind of my consumers sort of, which mm-hmm. is, which is fun. And I get tons, 
and tons of questions because I give out my email address. Oh, okay. you know, I have a yeah. Bob at Black Powder TP and I kind of every third video mention it. So I probably get, I don't know, five on average a day. And a lot of them are like three paragraph, you know, right. intricate questions. Yeah, because it's not uh, it's not something I mean, I think generally it's not simple. You know, it, no. it, it, there's a lot more things that can be off or different or need tuning or or what have you over, you know, my Ruger 1022. It, the trigger isn't working. I need to go to their website and buy the new trigger spring, you know, or, or whatever. Right. It's. I don't, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I get a lot of those, you know, like I just bought this, you know, Lyman Great Plains rifle and and it won't stay at full cock, mm. yeah. you know. And so it's like, oh, boy, this is this could be a complicated, long email yeah. exchange, you know, because <laughs> it's going to be inlet too tight and yeah. wood wood is in the way. Some wood needs to be taken out of the lock inlet and you don't have any idea where. So you almost have to walk them through this whole complicated, <laughs> you know, thing to try to figure out what it is. But I, I do enjoy that part. I enjoy, and that's kind of why I started the YouTube channel okay. is, 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 is just, I re and cause I've got tons of nephews and they come to the farm and they, they want to spend five minutes shooting the ARs and then they want to get the black powder guns out, oh, that's you know? Great. And so I'm always kind of walking kids from eight or nine to 12 or 14 through the muzzleloaders. And, and that kind of was like, man, that is neat. It's real neat to teach somebody something like that. And mm -hmm. that's so, so alien. And so that, that I kind of started the, the YouTube channel with the idea of the new shooter series kind of instructional yeah. uh, how to's. Cause I thought that was a useful thing that wasn't represented anywhere. It's, it's like really you, not. No, it's not. And so that, that was the idea. And I think Art um, Fleener started that that mm -hmm. whole idea. I can't remember if I had the conversation with him or if it was on ALR and we were talking in a same thread. I don't recall, but, but it was a conversation about getting new people into the sport. And, you know, I think we were talking about it in relation to the NMLRA and, and all of that. And, mm -hmm. and uh, that's kind of where the idea was born in that conversation with him about, man, I could you know, do a YouTube channel yeah, and, and do some how to's and do some show, some shooting and stuff. And, and then there's lots of kids on YouTube, a yeah. lot of kids, a lot of kids on YouTube that go to gun, gun channels, yeah, shooting channels. And so, um, so yeah, that's kind of what started it, but, um, it's kind of grown from there. You know, I'm kind of the smallest probably, um, black powder YouTube channel, uh, the newest certainly. Oh but, yes, uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I think I, I filled a pretty good niche with the, and you know, um, Mike Bellevue does a lot of how to stuff and mm -hmm. all of that. But, um, and I, and I, I watched all of his videos before I started and I, I think I'd watched them before I even considered starting right. most all of them, especially yeah. his Flint Fox stuff. But he's kind of the, I think, Really, the trailblazer for muzzleloading yeah, on the old YouTube. Dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I admired his stuff so much and and learned so much mm -hmm. um, that that's kind of how I based it. I based it um, kind of on his channel with with the idea of the new shooter series being a, a separate and primary playlist. Yeah. 
um, where, where the, the content of the video was narrow and it was in the title, um, versus sort of, um, which most channels do is that, you know, the, the how to adjust the trigger is, um, is in something else. The, it, yeah. It's in yeah. the middle of another video on something and there's yeah. really no way you have to watch them all, but find, um, some small little niche thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of my idea was is, is I can title all of these little niche things that, that people really have questions about into their own little video and just kind of, you know, 30, 40 videos wouldn't be a problem. And right. that would that be a helpful list of, of, of videos for new shooters. Yeah. You're really getting, you know, elbow deep in something and able to discuss it. And then like you were saying, it opens up those emails that you're getting then. And th- that just kind of keeps that ball rolling of answering more questions and, and really benefiting the sport. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to think so. I, you know, I really, it's, it's interesting about that is, is the, the more of those videos that I've done, the more questions I get yeah. from the new shooters because they're, they're being sent to my new shooter series playlist from all these forums, you yeah. know, Hey, I'm a new guy here, you know, well, welcome, go to black powder TV and look at his new shooter series. And that's happening more and more often. Good. So I'm getting more and more <clears throat> questions back that, that that's slightly different than what I thought maybe the question might be. And then, um, so I'm running a sort of a full list of 20 or 30 video ideas at, at any one time. And it's coming from the feedback that I'm getting, Yeah. you know, well, I did this video, but it might be more helpful to do one. That's more focused on this. That's a little bit different than what I did because yeah. it sort of leaves out this two or three or four or five questions that I've gotten over the last, um, few months. And so I, I just kind of keep this list of 10 or 15 videos, uh, video ideas mm-hmm. and adjust them as I get another question. Oh, that's a great, great question. And I didn't think about it for this video idea. And so they, the questions sort of tune my, tune the focus of the, of the new shooter, the next videos coming along in the new shooter series, yeah. which is nice. It's sort of a self fulfilling, um, thing. All I have to do is sort of sit down and make them. The, right. the concepts are kind of coming at me now, which yeah. is nice, you know, because early on I'm sitting there going, okay, so how do I load one? Right. You know, that's, so there's like, I, I could think of five ideas, you know, but now there's hundreds of ideas and that's questions coming from people that are brand new, that I'm so kind of so far removed from that, that what didn't think that that would be a question, but it's an obvious question. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that, that's neat. That, that new shooter series is kind of up and running and, and, um, and I get a lot of questions from it, which is great. Well, I, I really appreciate your videos. I'm a religious watcher. I, I think that when it comes to muzzleloading and black powder online, they're, they're, they're kind of these different camps is how I think about them, but they're all people move from camp to camp and are always learning and always doing kind of their own thing. And that's something I really like about the black powder community is there's a million ways to do something and everybody's open to sharing or telling you how they're doing it and, and bringing new people along. And that's something I really appreciate about your channel. I know on our website, we 
because that's a it's a huge void right now is getting started in muzzleloading and it's not something that we're in a great position to do and at this at this time with the crazy year that it's been and i right. on our getting started links i have your videos in that playlist of here's here are the people you need to go watch to go learn about this stuff because you're you're answering those questions and you've built this little machine to <laughs> to help serve those new shooters and i just i i thank you for that because you're doing a great service well, I appreciate it. it. It's been a lot of fun, you know, and it, it's getting more fun as it goes along because, um, you know, you just get that feedback and then you want to go, man, I want to go make this video, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's whether it's, yeah, it is, it is. It's, you know, you're kind of spinning your wheels early on trying to get some sort of traction, not, not like viewership traction, but right. traction on what it is that you're trying to accomplish you don't really you're kind of shotgunning at first and then so as as the focus narrows down it it makes it easier on me um and a lot more fun and a lot less mentally you know taxing yeah so it's great yeah it's it's getting to the point where i just i'm having a lot of fun with it well good yeah yeah meeting meeting people it's amazing the the people i've met locally Mm, you know that yeah (laughs) that you know they either they either see me and I've had this happen just a few weeks ago, see me in a gun store and say, black powder TV right out of the blue <laughs> in my, in my home, basically in my hometown, wow. which is like blew me away. And then, um, you know, of course I get that at the, you know, the long rifle shows and stuff, mm-hmm. but, but I've also met people, which is nice on that have contacted me through black powder TV. And then as we get to talking about whatever their question is on the email, they tell me, well, I'm in, Nashville or Murfreesboro or one of the towns close by. So, I mean, in the last month, there's been two guys that live in Murfreesboro, 30, 30 miles from me that I've went and had lunch with when I, you know, call them up. Okay. I'm going to be in Murfreesboro. So we'll meet up for lunch at, you know, the local restaurant and shoot the breeze for an hour. Hmm. And that's been kind of, you know, interesting as yeah. well, you know, and, and, and I had fun with that. I, I, one guy I met in Murfreesboro, I'm, bought a couple of traditional knives from him. He said, Hey, I got some stuff. I think you'd be interested in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so we meet up for lunch and he's like, Hey, check these out. I'm like, dude, that is cool. I want that one. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's not, it's not necessarily entirely a long distance sort of thing. You know, it's kind of morphed into a little bit of, um, you know, not entirely just me making videos and uploading them to YouTube. Yeah. So pretty interesting. It's been a really interesting uh, thing, and, and, uh, and I've had a lot of fun doing it. For a limited time, you can enter to win a 15-pack of Thor Bullets. That's a $30 to $34 value. Visit thorbullets.com slash NMLRA to fill out the form and enter to win. Cool. I, I wanted to circle back. I really appreciate you kind of going into talking about YouTube a lot because I think people are really interested in kind of the behind the scenes stuff of that. And you, you've covered that very well. So I, I really appreciate that. But I wanted to circle yeah. back to the question too about if you, if you're comfortable with it, talking a little bit about your collection and some of your favorite pieces, periods, builders, or craftspeople. Yeah. Um, so, um, my main focus and the, the thing, the guns and, and the, and the accoutrements that I like the most are 
sort of the every man stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and I love the, um, some of the builders that make the, like the, the English fowlers that a landed gentry, you know, would have, would have had yeah. uh, four of them. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, yeah, but my people would have gone to jail if they yeah. <laughs> laid a finger on one, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I love those guns and I love seeing them at the shows, but, but sort of plausibly that one of my ancestors would have had. Mm-hmm. And that's the stuff that interests me. And my, my people were farmers and all the way back till they came over. Do you have um, any, uh, any family muzzleloaders just out of curiosity? No, I don't. I don't. Family guns, um, family guns, um, in droves, you know, grandpa's yeah. 1800s, 30, 30s and all of that, but no, no muzzleloaders passed down, which is a, which is a shame. I'd, I'd give my right arm for that almost. Right. Yeah. That's, it's something wonderful to have if you, if you can. Yeah. Find and it. I, yeah. And I envy those guys, you know, this is my great grandfather's. I'm like, Oh man, yeah. how awesome. Would that be my collection? It, it kind of focuses on sort of the simple stuff. My, my, Favorite guns are um, Southern Mountain type. Mm-hmm. That's my kind of number one on the list. And and my favorite builder of those guns is Jack Dupre. Um, and I've got one of his Saudi Daisy Tennessee guns and East Tennessee gun. And and uh, he just he just gets that sort of. Um, he builds them in a way kind of like Eric Kettenberg is another one of my favorites who patinas them. Yeah. Um, believably. And, and, and Jack's Southern guns are instead of being representative of a gun that you would have gone to the gun maker and bought, because that would have only happened in my family, my ancestors once every two or three generations. Right. Most, mm-hmm. most of my ancestors would have carried grandpa's gun, yeah. you know, and made it work throughout their life. Um, so it would have been an older gun. And so he, he makes these that are just beautiful. Like it would have been like the rifle your dad would have got when he was old enough to get his first gun or it would have been grandpa's second gun later in his life, that sort of thing. So those are my, those are my very favorites. Um, Southern guns with some age on them. And, um, you know, and second, and, and all of them are simple. I like simple guns, long rifles. So Eric Kettenberg, I've got a couple of his, and I love his stuff. His he's got that sort of artistic sort of vision that's, you know, Ian Pratt and and those guys have. You yeah. know, just kind of mind blowing artistic vision on what a long rifle could or 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 did look like. Mostly could have looked like. Yeah, they're bringing uh, in the the art to it. Right. Yeah. Just like like Ian Pratt's and uh, his painted guns and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. You know, just kind of mind blowing, but. Um, so yeah, Eric Kettenberg, kind of a long nose and he's got one of, um, he's got one of my 12 bores that he built in about 2000 that he's redoing because he didn't like the way he didn't like the story that it told. It was a simple barn gun. And so he wants to put some, um, like two or three iterations of its life, like adding a butt plate and adding, you know, a side plate that wasn't originally made on it. You know, you, that's the way Eric Kettenberg does. Okay. So I just, I just sent it to him and said, do your thing. So if he's listening, I'd like him to hurry up. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so I got a couple of his Mike Brooks guns. I love Mike Brooks. It's sort of working man, believable, um, um, Oh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of that, um, you know, 
you, you got to get out so many guns per year to make mm-hmm. your living, right. you know, back in those days. So, it, so it was done methodically well, but not a whole lot more time spent on it engraving or whatever than, than would have been practical yeah. in the day. So that's kind of Mike stays within those constraints, which I love about his stuff. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, getting the gun in and out of the shop versus a, a commission that I don't care what it costs, make me the most beautiful gun in town. Yeah. I mean, those are, you know, I like what you, what you said there. You got to build so many guns a year and it's, it's part of your job. It's how you put food on the table. I, I think that's a really good place to put it because it's, it's not that it's a lesser gun because it's not that ornate. It's, it's a different class of those kind of guns and it has, it has a place cause that's what, that's what people had and what, that's right. what those Smiths had to do. Right. And that was the relationship between a gun buyer and a gun maker in yeah. those days. You know, I'm making guns. I've got to make so many per year. Tell me what you want mm-hmm. and I'll get it to you as fast as I can. And you'll get the engraving that came on the lock plate yeah. from the barrel and I'll do this and that for you if that's what you want. Yeah. But, but let me know what you want. Cause I got stuff to do. <laughs> <You <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of Mike Brooks. And I, that's what I love about his stuff is his, his guns sort of exude that. I'm, and I'm trying to think of the term. It's just left me, but, um, uh, I'm sure somebody, uh, there, there'll be a comment somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Somebody will mention it. But anyway, it's that sort of in, get it in and out. And, you know, I'm mean, not not um, cutting quality at all or the quality of the work. It's right. just it's done in a practical manner. So that's what I love about Mike's stuff. And, I, and I've and i owned um, several of his guns and, and I love them. Um, Jack Brooks is another of my favorite. Been around a long time. Um, love his guns have have one of his right now a carolina um type g carolina gun mm-hmm. that he made um alan martin um mm-hmm. is another guy is, you know he makes that simple gun right that's yeah. famous for he can make a beautiful ornate gun but his shimmels he's famous for that and so i've got two of his guns um uh, john newcomer early lancaster shimmel in 58 that i love big early gun and then I've got what he calls kind of a shimmel plus. It's a shimmel, but with a butt plate, basically. And it's a it, he he made it as a forty five, but um, the barrel's been shot out, so it's being bored out right now. Actually, the barrel is getting bored out to a fifty. Oh, cool. So I, yeah, so I got Alan Martin. I got two of his. I love his stuff. I have a Kibler SMR. I love mm-hmm. what Jim Kibler's doing. Um, I've got one of those kids. on order right now. Yeah. It's, I mean, they're so sleek and yeah. slender, just, you know, it's a Southern gun. It's my, my favorite type of gun. So I had to get one and I got one very early on. Um, so I love that. I've got a little horror. Um, so yeah, just kind of a little bit of everybody, but it's sort of the, the thread of my collection is simple, workman that's it workmanlike manner mike brooks mm-hmm. built in a workmanlike manner right that's the term for for what mike brooks does but anyway the the uh, just simple guns you know that's my my collection is sort of focused on that yeah i don't ha- i don't have any with you know 10 pounds of brass on it even though i do love those guns um um to look at them but um but they would they would be probably what they were to the guys who owned them. There's a lot of argument about this, but it was a high end gun. Yeah. You know, you know, it was a high end gun even back then. 
<clears throat> but um, but yeah, the simple stuff, and that's where my collection lies. You know, the simple guns. Mm-hmm. You know, not necessarily cheap guns today, but but just the simple lines. And when when you when you get rid of all the like Alan Martin's guns, when you get rid of all the ornate stuff, that the architecture has to carry. Yeah carry the day right yep. and his his guns are so sexy and perfect and and they just flow yeah that they you work. know to me he yeah yeah al's the um he's a he's a genius he's like eric kettenberg to me just kind of a mad genius and so that's pretty much it outside of i mean that's my flintlocks um and kind of what i like in a flintlock and what i collect in a flintlock mm-hmm. but you know, I've got like 30% of my collection that rotates all the time. Okay. One of the guys on ALR will call me and say, dude, you still have this gun? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about trading this for that? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I trade so much sometimes. And like I'm in that, I'm at the tail end of that phase right now that I've actually got three gun crates in my shop just leaning against the wall because they're coming and going. And, right. you know, that's usually a pretty stable collection, but this has been a, a year, I guess we're all bored sitting around that I've done a lot of swapping. But yeah. Getting something new in the shop. Yeah. Getting something new in and you know, it's been, it has been a crazy year. I haven't done anything on the workbench, um, uh, building wise, <clears throat> but, um, um, you know, I, I've done some stuff, but it's just been a nutty year. I took, I took my Kibler SMR. I bought it as a 36 and I called Jim and he had a, an older one of, um, um, the, the old rice barrels and, mm-hmm. and 45. So I bought it from him and changed my 36 SMR to a 45. So now I have two barrels for my oh, cool. Kibler. Yeah. So I've done some little stuff like that, but, but it, it has been a nutty year. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm putting together a, for a video right now, a St. Louis Hawken traditions kit. It's kind of a primer for me. I, I put together an old CVA kit many years ago. And this was kind of my first foray back into it. And it's been nice getting, just being able to unplug, take care of things in the morning and go down in the afternoon in the shop and just work with my hands and try to figure that out just to kind of separate from (laughs) the rest of the world. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I do love gun building too. I haven't built too many of them, five or six, um, kind of from start to finish i've i've done three or four where i found some old one built in the 70s with terrible architecture way too much wood left on it yeah. you know and reshaped it and done that i've done that a bunch of times but built a few kits a few pistols um but i mean that that's something i, I enjoy doing i enjoy making the parts for them that's i had i had the most fun with that kibler kit because i made a I made the nose cap for it. Mm-hmm. I made the yeah. ram, ramrod pipes for it, custom pipes. Did a lot of custom work on that gun and, and enjoyed that. I, I do enjoy that part of it. So where do you – I mean, you're, I think, one of the people right now that has your finger on the pulse of muzzleloading. And I think in, in some ways you're maybe even guiding it as well to a new generation. But where do you see – where do you see it going, you know, in the next five, ten years? Boy, that's a that's a tough one and – and I don't, I don't know. I know it's, um, there's some challenges, you know, there, there's some challenges as far as, um, the kind of the future of hunting in general, mm-hmm. sort of the, the future of guns in general. Um, 
and and the perception of both of those things generally. Um, I think there's challenges there. Um, I mean, challenge challenges bending the curve upwards. Yeah. But 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 I think um, surprisingly there. Well, there's a surprising number more than what I thought there. I'm not saying that right. There's, there's a, there surprisingly, there's more people getting into the sport than I thought there was. You know what I mean? I kind of thought early on that it was kind of bare bones and a few here and a few there, but, but like what we talked about before about the people getting into it for the deer season, for the muzzleloader deer season there, that's a smaller percentage of the ones I'm seeing than I thought it would be. Yes. So like I thought, well, that's going to be 75, 85% of, of all new people getting into muzzleloading, but it's, but it's sort of not. Yeah. It's, there's, it, it, there's it, an audience it, that is into hunting and then there's an audience that I think is, is into muzzleloading. And that's not to, to degrade the guys who pick up an inline to get an extra two weeks. I mean, right. I, I'm glad that you're, you're getting a muzzleloader and you're trying out something new. I mean, that's right. if you want to learn more about it, you know, I'm here and, and let's learn about it. But I, I'm, I'm right there with you that I, the they're really just looking for that extra couple of weeks. Right. And right. There's a lot of other people interested in the history and the, and the other stuff with it. And that, and that's a bigger percentage than I thought it was. And and so that gives me some hope um, that, that there's enough new people coming along that, that to keep this all going. And, and so I think, I think there are, enough people, new people coming into it with sort of the history and the tradition in mind to keep it all going. But, but it's like, man, the, the guys who were in their seventies and eighties now, that was a boom, you know, that was a huge mm-hmm. boom, Jeremiah Johnson and all of that yeah. stuff. And, and, you know, matching that I think is going to be tough. Do we need to, I, I actually think that, um, that the Revenant had a lot to do with the spike we've seen in the last year or so. I think that uh, as far as historical, sorry to cut you off there. Yeah. Uh, as far as historic, historic movies go, I think that has definitely been one of the better ones as far as accurate portrayal and as garnering interest because it brought a yeah. whole new level of that era to film and to people. Yeah. I, I was, I was excited when I saw it because it had that Jeremiah Johnson sort of feel, you know, mm-hmm. the, the protagonist that was, you know, you kind of were compelled by a story and Flintlock and what he was carrying and his son, you know, his, yeah. his Native American son and that sort of whole thing. I thought it was, I, I, I thought, man, this could have a little bit of a kick like, like Jeremiah Johnson for, for sort of our hobby. And I, I think it has, I don't think it was as, as obvious as like Jeremiah Johnson and, and that sort of thing. But um, but I think it, I think we're going to look back and see that it had a bit of a, gave a bit of a bump, but I don't know, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's, I'm, I'm sort of happy to see the number of people that are sort that are coming into black powder that aren't necessarily coming from, from traditional hunting or, yeah. or modern guns. Like there's been a lot of people like on some of the forums where, um, Hey, I'm new here and I've never bought a gun in my life. And I just bought a CBA Hawken hmm. or whatever, you know, Yeah. And you're like, man, where did you come? How yeah. do you, you got to <laughs> tell me your life story? Cause, and that, that's not as rare as, as you would think. Yeah. 
you know, and I don't know what that, I don't know what that is. I don't know what triggered that. I, um, I have many theories because I mean, that's part of, a part of my job. I mean, the, the podcast and talking to people is a lot of fun, but like people that just like that, like you say, I never bought a gun and I just bought a CVA Hawken. Like I want to just sit down and talk to that person for days and try right. to understand that because, you know, I can talk about, you know, self-reliance and independence and getting hands on it, but you know, it, it's all kind of theory, I guess, and, and trying to figure out what people are interested in. Um, but I'm, yeah. I'm seeing the same thing that there are people that just come out of the, out of nowhere, seemingly that are just, boom, I'm into this. Let's go. Right. And, 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 and numbers that, that give you hope, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's not one or two I'm seeing it, you know, it's not no huge tsunami, but it's, but it's enough that, that, yeah, you want to find out like what, like your, your parents never had a gun in the house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how did you get here? You know, yeah. how did you get here to, to, you know, having a, a, a percussion factory gun for two weeks and now you're looking at flintlocks. Yeah. And, you know, like you're doing kind of how I did when, when the trigger hit me and which is like moving fast. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the guys do come into the, the, the inlines and then make their way, um, to flintlocks, you know, a good percentage of those people do, but I've seen like on muzzleloading forum, I've seen people knock on the door and say, Hey, I'm thinking about buying this inline you know, mm -hmm. and the members of the forum point them, well, you're sort of in the wrong place. This is traditional muzzleloading. Go to our sister site, modernmuzzleloading.com. And, and like half of those people go, oh, okay, well, what are you guys doing? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about an inline, but this seems cooler. And, and they stick around, you mm -hmm. know, a good percentage of those people stick around. The next thing you know, well, I'm, I just went and bought a, you know, a percussion gun to hunt with. I'm excited. Yeah. You know, and then like they're a new member there and then, then, and then a regular pretty quick. Yeah. So we, we have had people come like to that, to the forum and, and, you know, at the wrong door and, and stay. Yeah. They just say, well, so there's is, something appealing even, even to these younger guys to it, that, that history is not a thing to a lot of them and the tradition and the, you know, sort of looking at it from the vantage point of, of being a history buff and all of that, that's not really where they're coming from. And I really don't know where it is they're coming from. Yeah. That's what kind of got me with the sort of the Revenant and the movies and the, you know, Daniel Day Lewis. And yeah. it's got to be, it's got to be kind of that. Like, you know, my favorite movie was, you know, um, Last of the Mohicans. And, mm -hmm. So I decided to get a gun and I think I'm going to get one like he has. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, I think there's some of that, but, but I, I don't, as far as the future, you know, goes, I think it's positive. I think, um, um, I think we're all doing what we can do to sort of, you know, bring more people into it. And I just don't know. I don't know what we can do as far as really bringing a boon to it, but, right. um, but I think people are coming and I think, um, I think people don't know, like I'm always shocked at, at the 90% of people that are subscribers to my channel that every time I post a video, when I go do a long rifle show, they're like, I didn't know those existed. Yeah. So, so I think there's a, 
the next challenge, getting them to notice traditional muzzleloading. And the next challenge is to get them to kind of see that there's this whole culture out there, Yeah, that there's long rifle shows, that there's shoots, that there's groups, that there's, there's somebody else just down the road that does the same thing and they've been doing it longer. Yeah. And, and they've can, got the old hat, yeah. you know, and, you know, in the shirt. So, I mean, that, that's sort of the network and I don't know how we sort of manage that, you know, kind of introducing these new people to the, to the sort of network that you get into. Um, that's an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> I always like asking <laughs> because I, I, I like to hear what people say and I, and across the board, I think this is the 32nd or 33rd episode of the podcast and yeah. overwhelmingly it's positive. You know, every, I don't think I've heard one person say, you know, that it's, we're not going to be doing muzzleloading in 20 years, you know? And I, I, I think that's a, just a, maybe the listeners are sick of hearing it. I don't know, but I think it's a, a good thing to keep in the back of our minds is, you know, this is an old thing, but there's always people, always more people coming and being interested in it. And I think it's, I think it's got a bright future. I, I agree with you. I don't know that we're going to see a boon like we did in the, in, you know, 1976 with the bicentennial. I mean, I can hope for that with the right. sesquicentennial coming up, but you know, I'm okay with a nice steady, you know, growth year over year, because I, I think that's how you, you keep this sport and the hobby and the tradition going. Right. I completely agree. I completely agree. And I hope, you know, I, I'm, I'm heartened by the number of people that, are, that are brand new into it, that are, that are finding my channel and then, through through it the other channels and and or the other way around and and um you know there's no no shortage of questions from brand new people mm -hmm. that got their first gun three days ago for me you know yeah no shortage of show no shortage of emails so i'm <laughs> i'm happy about that it would kind of stink to you know get one email a month from yeah. a new guy you know right. but i'm not i'm getting a lot and so that is heartening so we'll see i think it's um I, like you say, I think it, I think there's a bright future. I think it's, um, I think we may not want to expect um, that 1976 peak, but but I think we can keep it all going, and I think people enjoy it, and I think people get hooked really quick. Yes, you know the the things get kind of sunk in super quick. People just kind of like, man, flintlocks, dude, I'm going to be the coolest guy in my yeah neighbor <laughs> at, my, at my range, you know yeah. And, and, and I, and it's funny too, just on that real quick, the number of guys that are like in town and live in an apartment mm -hmm. in the city and their shooting is all done at their local range, which is an indoor range. Yeah. And they're rolling you know? up with them with a flintlock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're just like, they're they're So their whole thing is I'm fixing to go to my range with my new flintlock and all the regulars there. And I can't wait to tell the person behind the counter that I know on a first name basis yeah. about this flintlock, you know? And so that like, they're kind of coming into it there yeah which is pretty I, I love hearing those stories because that's like a totally different way than i came into it so just kind of visualizing that whole scenario is just you know it's funny and i love it yeah that's great well bob i really appreciate you coming on i think this was a, a great conversation i think we covered everything that i had on my list is there is there anything that you'd like to talk about or plug here i mean this is a chance for you to tell people about what you're doing if they i'm sure they've heard of you but if they haven't yeah you know, where well, can people just, find you 
Well, I am not on social media outside of YouTube. So I don't do Facebook or anything, unfortunately. You're, you're a saner just, man I'm, for it. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> like I try to stay back in my holler and kind of stick with that. So, you know, Black Power TV on, on YouTube, uh, Bob at BlackPowderTV.com is a great way to get a hold of me. Um, I would like to say one thing, the four or five or six channels that are on YouTube that, you know, a lot of guys know or they may not know, um, um, Duelist 1954, Mike Bellevue's channel, mm-hmm. Bill Raby, you know, he doesn't, does his building videos and, um, black powder maniac shooter. I know you've had on, he's been out to the farm here. Um, um, Leatherwood outdoors is another guy who does a lot of flintlock hunting videos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those guys were, have been doing it for like Mike Bellevue for 10 years. Yeah. And so I'm glad to join that, that little group. And, and I think between all of us, we can, make some kind of difference, even if it's to help new guys not get discouraged and, and have a place to go before they sort of find their local network and, and get out and make it a big part of their, you know, outdoor hobby life. So I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be there with those guys and, and help in some way. Well, we appreciate it, Bob. You're doing a great job. Thank you, brother. We'd like to thank Bob again for coming on the show and talking with me. I think the entire unedited conversation ran close to two hours. Um, so I'm hoping we can get Bob on the phone again here sometime. I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully having some shows to go to here soon, maybe hit some shows down in his area and meet up in person. We'll have links to everything that Bob talked about in the show notes below. They'll also be in the YouTube channel description for the video, as well as the accompanying blog post at nmlra.org. Remember to use the discount code PODCAST10 at the NMLRA store. That's going to give you 10% off of merchandise in the NMLRA store. We've got a ton of great books, clothing, and hats on sale right now. If you're interested in gunsmithing at all, this book is just a great example of historical reference, but also how to do it. Even if you're not interested in it, if you're interested in you know, learning how things are done technically, this is the book for you. We'd like to thank you so much for listening. As we head into the holiday season, I want to let you know that you can become a member of the NMLRA for a special introductory rate now until the end of December. If you like what we do with the podcast and with the YouTube videos, you're going to love the production that goes into Muzzle Blast magazine. The team there has been working super hard on making this year's magazines, I think, some of the best ever produced. I'm saying that as a longtime Muzzle Blast fan. Uh, You're going to want to check out that magazine. We've got a lot of great new writers and a lot of great new stories coming on. And um, don't don't miss it. Check it out. NMLRA.org slash join.